Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Adam Gray, the basketball card fanatic. Uh, really enjoyed having Adam on before and visiting with him being on his podcast, uh, one of the original podcasts. But today is Dueling Questions Basketball Edition. Basketball is one of my favorite sports, but it's my favorite sport for the next hour or whatever I'm going to talk to Adam. So I think it's his favorite sport too. Thanks sponsors, Tops Panini and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugging the Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So welcome, Adam. Hit me with your best basketball shot. I'm excited to do this again, uh, Jim. Thanks again for having me. When I used to look at the magazine back in the mid-90s, there came a point after it's probably somewhere between 1998 and the early 2000s when there were so many basketball products that the magazine had to make a decision to not carry some sets. How did you determine which sets at that point were ones that, that the magazine would no longer be covering the prices on month to month? I, I basically made all those decisions in concert with the guys up through 96. But after that, it, it was more those guys. They'd come see me if they had a dilemma. But the first cut was always to try to reduce the listings of what we have. And if you remember back in the mid-90s, late 90s, some of the companies were intentionally complicating their products in order to get more listing space as if that was going to increase their sales. Now, maybe it did. I don't. I hope it didn't. But they had very complicated things that you just couldn't you know, do a ratio. And, and I think that was intentional. Some companies were more aggressive with sub-brands than others, and we tried to have some sense of fairness. In some cases, Adam, we could wait a month. We could say, you know what, we need to see if this is a mainstream set, if this is really catching on. And of course, then they'd call us and say, it's not going to catch on because you guys didn't list it. So it's only been out a month, and is this a primary set or a secondary set? for you, all the flagship sets we were doing. Then, so we had to think, well, what about the parallels? What about the inserts? So it was a huge dilemma. We really tried to nail it, but when we didn't nail it, it wasn't because we got angry calls from the card companies. It was from collectors and dealers who said, you have to list this set. You have to list these cards. And it wasn't just a few. So we weren't making too many mistakes and then consequently, we, at some point in there, we started the quarterly, the plus magazines to try to be more exhaustive. And that had its own resulting problems. Anyway, well, thanks, Adam. That's a good one. Okay. My question for you, who am I collecting for? Who are you collecting for? I have a top thousand on my wall. You have a top hundred. Is it for you? Is it for advanced collectors? Is it for your family? Is it for your digital Instagram friends? Who are you collecting for? And who am I collecting for, in your opinion, for somebody that's a really nice collection? Who's their audience? I think on the surface, it sounds like a really simple question, but I don't think it is. I'm struggling with it. I think it's a great question because um, if we're really honest with ourselves, I'll be really honest with myself here for a second. In my 30 something years of collecting, the answer to that question has probably varied. You often say that you, that you were never happier in this hobby than when you were close to the cards. I, I think about that a lot because I think what you're saying there is that when you're with the cards, when you're collecting the cards for you, and when you don't care as much about what other people think is, is doing your thing. And when I think about this, when I think about my collection, I think that especially today with social media, there's definitely a um, temptation to want to collect what other people like. But that's a fool's errand because 
because someone else will always have something better than you, no matter what. My collection is far better than I ever thought it would be after decades of putting it together and spending time and the effort on it that I have. There's still people's collections that are 10 times my collection. And so I have to be doing it for me if I want to enjoy a fullness in that. But that takes me to another answer to the question, which is at some point it starts being worth so much that I do think very hard about how the value will end up um, benefiting or not benefiting my family. And I'd say for me, the first answer is it has to be interesting to me, but it has to take care of my family. And I think I really need to be careful to not collect what other people like, because I think that just not being something that will really bring me happiness in the end. What do you think about that? Good answer. I'm struggling with it because I'm realizing that my wall of fame has a primary component of things that I really like and that are meaningful to me and would be meaningful to other collectors that I know and enjoy and good friends. There's a percentage of it though that's just it's filler because it's what I think I ought to have or what somebody might like, maybe not even a collector. So I'm thinking I'm not focused because I'm usually a pretty focused guy. I gave myself permission to not be so focused. This is the other side of the coin to the question that I just asked you, but I, I think that, that there's some specifics here that I'll bring into it. We talked about the, the monthly magazine and why certain things wouldn't make the cut as time goes by. But on the other hand, starting very early on, there were cards that we would maybe call oddball that were in the almanac, the annual, and the annual could drive people to collect certain sets as, as well as the monthly could, probably not to the same degree. But as you think about that, and you think about how sets like, for example, the 1968 Tops test set that you and I had talked about before, we talked about your Jerry Sloan that's on the wall. Had that set been in the monthly magazine, it would have, I believe, been viewed differently. Or if the 1996 Tops Chrome set had been referred to as a parallel rather than is its own set, I think it would have been maybe viewed differently or not as positively. So how do you feel about whether something was included or not in the monthly or the almanac, how that potentially influenced people and how they collect? There's three categories. There's stuff that was in the magazine, which was supposed to be the most mainstream, the sets that could have rookie cards that were widely collected, not necessarily mass produced, but not test issues either. And then the almanacs and the annual price guides, the books, they'd be a lot more exhaustive. And that would include test issues and things where we could get reasonable pricing information, not counterfeit or contraband, illegal kinds of issues. Uh, but there were other sets that were just quasi-legit that never made the annual price guide. So if it was in the price guide, that, that mean, it generally meant it was a legit collectible. And it could be a test issue. It also, in many cases, Adam, they were in the annual because the price fluctuations were not that great. The 68 tops test, good example, not even that many of them out there. There wasn't actively traded, but the almanac and the annual price got allowed people to see, hey, th that's out there. If I see it, I'll know what it is. And they're pretty expensive and they must be pretty hard. Okay, here's my big question for you. I've got a project for you. You have a top 100. I'd like to consider what a top 100 basketball cards would look like if you limited every card that you bought was no more than $1,000. Okay, You can spend $1,000 per card, no more. You could spend less, but you're going to get, the, for example, 100 cards. And $1,000 each, that's a significant collection. You're probably not going to be able to get a PMG of a really good player. But you could get a PMG of a not-so-good player. You could get 
you might be able to get a Jordan rookie if it's authentic. Maybe not, though. Uh, and so the strategy of what you would get with a $1,000 limit, would you be going for great cards in poor condition <laughs> or not so great cards in great condition? Would you put a black label in there? or something like that. How would you configure your top 100 knowing that in some cards that are extremely rare, you'd have to get a lower condition, a Mike and Rookie. It would belong in a top 100, but can you even get a Mike and Rookie in a with a bullet hole for $1,000? Maybe, not so sure. I wish you could get a Mike in with a bullet hole for $1,000. I'm saying I think people would do that if they thought mm-hmm. they thought I can get this one for huge bucks or I get this other one. And Kyle, Wax Museum guy, he's looking for the worst Bill Russell rookie card he can find. I love Kyle's perspective on this because Kyle's a collector, right? He just, there's I things. Don't, I don't think he's independently. No, he's not. But for example, he owns a PMG from the 97 Metal Universe, a red one of Dale Davis. And that for him, he's a Pacer, he's a Pacer fan, but he's also a fan of the history of basketball cards. And in that way, I think he and I are probably pretty similar. So um, you're asking a question that I think is more or less a, a values question for me. And I will tell you, I value rarity and I value significance. And so the very best cards are both of those things. But in okay. most cases, especially in this case where you're limiting it to, I can only spend a thousand dollars on it, I have to choose because I might be able to go find a PMG Red. In fact, I would be able to for under a thousand, but I wouldn't get a Michael Jordan. I could get a Michael Jordan base card that's a PSA nine for under a thousand, probably, but that's not really rare. So, which of those two things would I prefer? I would take the PMG Red a hundred times. You'd go toward rarity, even in the condition. Okay. I want to ask you now about '90s inserts, where a large percentage of my collection. Uh, you know, resides both from a quantity, but mostly from value perspective. On this podcast, you've talked about how if you go back in time, if there was anything you were just going to go save, it probably would have been the highest end Jordan rare inserts. We're talking about these PMGs and Jambalayas and things like that. As, as you think about it right now, I know you bought a whole bunch of cards along the way to know what they look like and had them in your inventory, if that's the right word for images and for stuff like that. As you look back, did you ever own anything that now is six figures or whatever, but that you spent relatively a small amount on at the time? How about zero? Some of the cards that are good cards, not six-figure cards, were boxes that were given to us by the card company or samples that were given to us by the card companies. We used them in the magazine. And when I sold the company, it was commingled with the cards that I already had from when I started the company. So I wasn't going to split them out. And I was the collector. So I've never spent huge bucks on uh, newer cards. I, I bought collections that had some really good cards in there back in the old day. Yes. But did can you think of a time where you got one of those sample boxes and there was a card that now you look back at and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe we ended up with that one. I, I hate to be negative, but I can't believe some of those cards are gone. Hmm. We got some of those cards. And then when I sold the company, they weren't there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ugh. So that's bittersweet. Now, I, I certainly am not complaining, but we had a, a card library where we had the cards and they were checked out of library, so to speak, to be used in uh, articles and then supposedly put back. And 99% of the time they were. And, you know, but a lot of people had access and uh, there was an occasional shrinkage. You know, I'm not going to get mad at everybody because there probably was one person 
uh, at least one person that we did fire. He was lifting cars. And when you're an expert, you don't lift the common. You you know what to get. So that's a little bittersweet. But I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over it. But yeah, I think what would have been petty larceny in those days is grand theft now because some of those cards could have been. And it's okay. It's it's not okay, but there's nothing I can do about it. But I wasn't going out buying boxes. When I was at the Nationals with Rich and we were going around looking for cards, it wasn't that kind of stuff, Adam. Unless we didn't have any, if we didn't have an example, which we usually got an example, we didn't get a complete set, but I'm sure we got sent at least one PMG, but maybe just one. It wasn't like we got a whole set, but we got one. It wasn't Michael Jordan. So that wasn't one of the ones. So Again, bittersweet, but just awkward. The cards weren't worth that much then, but they were rare. So when somebody took it, and again, it's a very small percentage, extremely small percentage. Their cards, if they were pictured in the magazine, they should have been in the library, and some of them are missing. When you had to fire the one guy, how did you know that he had taken the cards? I would imagine you probably didn't have cameras and that sort of thing back in those days. So do you you remember how you were able to figure that out? I think he sold something. Oh, yeah, that was dumb. dumb. He was in bad financial shape that I later found out about. It, it's a long story, but and then he promised me he'd never do it again. But the other guys then knew, and he never would have been able to build back the trust. He was a bright guy, but not bright enough to figure out there's so many ways to make money in this hobby without doing illegal stuff. The man in the house of cards.